If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to Job chapter 42. Job chapter 42 as we conclude our series in the book of Job this evening. Our author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and he says, Then Job answered, and the Lord said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. It came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the adversities that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him a one piece of money and each a gold of ring, a, excuse me, a ring of gold. The Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female camels. He had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemima, and the second Keziah, and the third Karen Hapuk. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons, four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. And thus ends the book of Job. The loose ends have been tied up. Job has repented of his sin. Job's friends have repented of their sins. Job is lifted up out of the dust of his humiliation his fortunes are restored, even restored twofold. The conclusions of the book may not answer all of the questions which we could ask, but it surely supplies all that God intends for us to know. And so as we consider what's here in this final chapter of the book of Job, let's consider it under three main headings. First, Job's repentance. Secondly, Job's intercession. And thirdly, Job's restoration. So we have Job's repentance... Job's intercession and Job's restoration. First of all, his repentance. 
As we saw a couple of weeks ago in looking at chapters 38 through 41, the Lord showed up there beginning in chapter 38 and spoke. And what he did was to remind Job that he was sovereign and that he was in charge. He showed Job that there was no way that he could understand or replicate the Lord's works in the natural world. And therefore, it was necessary for Job to hold his tongue and not accuse God of dealing wrongly with him. Because if Job could not understand the way in which God created and governed the natural world, then how much less could Job probe into the ways of God and God's dealings with him? God's ways are mysterious to us. That's something we have to live with. We have to be all right with that. We have to know that God is in control and that he does no wrong. And even if we don't understand, we have to trust. This, in short, was the message that Job was supposed to get when the Lord showed up and spoke. And Job got it. Let's look at his words there in verses 2 and following. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now, I'm sure that Job, being a godly man, as we saw at the beginning of the book, Job already knew and believed these things before any of the bad events of the book of Job ever took place. Job was an orthodox believer and a godly man. Surely he knew from the outset that God could do anything. Surely he knew from the beginning that all of God's purposes would stand. But now, he had just had a fresh revelation from God. God had showed up and spoken in the whirlwind. And that point had therefore been made to Job very clear that the Lord could do all things. This had been freshly impressed upon him. That no purposes of the Lord could be thwarted. This has been freshly laid upon Job's heart. And if we understand who God really is, and if we understand that his purposes are ultimately for the good of his people and for the glory of his name, then it's a wonderful thing to be reminded of this truth, isn't it? That the Lord can do all things and that no purpose of his can be thwarted. And just to underline that point, that it really is wonderful and comforting to know this truth, just imagine if it were not true. Imagine if the reverse were true. What would our position in the world be like if God could not do all things? Or if there were purposes of God, one or more than one, which, for some reason or another, would not stand? If such were the case, life would be very scary, in the scariest sense imaginable, right? We had for our call to worship this morning Psalm, uh, the opening verses of Psalm 18 about the Lord being our rock, our refuge, our fortress, and all of that. All of that would fall by the wayside if the words of Job 42.2 were not true. If God could not do all things and no purpose of his could be thwarted, if that were not true, just forget about God being your refuge, your rock, your safe place. None of that would stand if these words were not true. A.W. Pink began his book, The Sovereignty of God, asking the question, who is regulating the affairs on this earth today? God or the devil? If God could not do all things, or if some purpose of his could be thwarted, I suppose we'd have to say the devil, or somebody else is regulating the affairs of this world. Thanks be to God, that is not the case. God's revelation to Job had just made that point very clear, that he's the creator, he is in charge, and we dare not darken counsel by 
words without knowledge, even if those words come from the midst of pain. Pain is real. Suffering is real. But we can't suppose that whatever may come forth out of our mouth in the moment of pain and suffering is necessarily true or praiseworthy. And Job had, as we've seen, darkened counsel by words without knowledge. In the midst of all of his pain, he essentially accused God of doing wrong to him. According to chapter 40, verse 2, he had found fault with the Lord and had reproved the Lord. But now, thanks to the God showing up and speaking in chapters 38 through 41, Job sees his sin in finding fault with the Lord, and Job owns his sin. He says in verse 3, Therefore I declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. In other words, Job knows now that he was saying things that he had no business at all saying. He was speaking things concerning which he had no knowledge. And now, his situation is not such that he has learned that of which he was ignorant. In other words, Job still doesn't know all of God's purposes that are, that are back there and what the reason was for which God afflicted him. Job now has simply learned of his ignorance. He knew now that he was speaking without knowledge. He doesn't have the knowledge that he lacked, but he just knows now that he was speaking ignorantly. And he repents of that. He repents of the fact that he had not taken into account the fullness of God's character when he found fault with the Lord in the Lord's dealings with him. He doesn't know God's purposes or God's reasons for all that God has done to him, but now he's reminded of God's sovereignty and his power. He says in verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Now, it's difficult to be sure whether Job is speaking literally in the sense of seeing an appearance of God, a, a theophany, kind of in the way that Abraham and the patriarchs sometimes saw a theophany of God, or whether Job is simply comparing his, his former understanding based on, uh, on the truth that he had been taught and had believed, as opposed to his current understanding now, now that he had heard God's voice in the whirlwind firsthand. It's difficult to know if there was an actual theophany here or if Job is just speaking relatively now that he's actually heard God speak in this whirlwind. One way or the other, what is certain is that Job repented. He acknowledges that he had meddled in things that were too deep for him, he retracted what he said. He repented in dust and ashes. Now, obviously, God showing up in a whirlwind and speaking is not a normative experience, right? We should not expect that this will happen to us. But what we should do here is to learn the lesson that Job learned and respond appropriately. And at least a prominent part of that lesson is this. Even when we're suffering and even when we are wondering what God is doing... We need to remember that God can do all things. We need to remember that no purpose of God's can be thwarted. That we don't have full knowledge of all of God's purposes in what he is doing in our lives. And even with that, we can trust him still. Therefore, we must never find fault with God. Therefore, we must never reprove God in his dealings with us. And this is a lesson that we ought to learn as much as possible before the dark days come. We want, to, we want to learn this lesson before the trials come as much as possible. Certainly, if they come, 
and we're unprepared and we fall into the same error of Job, we ought to learn the lesson then and repent along with Job. Right? We see here God's mercy and God's willingness to receive his people when they repent and return to their senses. And if that's us, if we sin in Job's way, then let's imitate Job also in his repentance. But as much as we are able, let's try to learn this lesson before the troubled times come so that when the heartache is fresh and when the emotions are raw, instead of lashing out against the Lord... Instead of finding fault with the Lord, we can go to the Lord in faith and in reverent honesty. We want to be able to do what Psalm 62, 8 says. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. That's the posture that we want to have when we pour out our hearts in the moment of agony. We want to do so in reverence, in full trust, knowing that God is a refuge for us, not shaking our finger or shaking our fist at God. We want to do so in the full knowledge that if we've been reconciled to God through the death of His Son, God is a refuge for us. He is not our enemy. Though He may seem to be sometimes, He is not. We can go to the Lord in reverent trust and pour out our hearts before Him. And that is the right thing to do. The wrong thing to do is to accuse the Lord of wrongdoing and find fault with him. Given our sinfulness, that's, that's really easy to do. Right? Haven't, haven't you done it? I'm sure I have. Right? We, we've looked at our lives and, and we've looked at certain things that happened that we wish didn't happen, certain things that didn't happen that we wish that did happen. And it's really easy to, to get into... The, the mentality of Job when he was at his lowest, to find fault with God and to reprove God for his ways. We must never do this. A.W. Pink expressed the right posture when he said, Faith endures a seeing him who is invisible. Endures the disappointments, the hardships, and the heartaches of life by recognizing that all come from the hand of him who is too wise to err and too loving to be unkind. This is the way that that God deals with us. He deals with us in such a way that he is too wise to err and also too loving to be unkind to us. And so as you go through the disappointments, the hardships, the heartache, everything that we go through here in this world, let's remember that they all ultimately come from the hand of God that he's sovereign over them all, but yet they're all for our good. He's not being unkind to us. Though it may seem that way on the surface, we have to look deeper than that. So let's learn from Job's repentance, and let's repent ourselves if we have done what he did, and let's learn from it so that we can avoid it when the hard times come if we have not sinned in the way that Job sinned. And notice secondly here Job's intercession. We see that in verses 7 through 9 where the Lord voices his anger against Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And the reason for the Lord's anger against them is given in verse 7. As he's speaking to Eliphaz, he says, Because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And we see the the same charge brought against them down in verse 8. Now how is this so? As we've seen throughout the book, Job's friends said some things that were true, even many things that were true 
in their way, some of these things are even helpful. Paul quotes from Eliphaz, uh, Eliphaz's words, Job 5.13. Paul quotes in 1 Corinthians 3.19, where Eliphaz had said that the Lord is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And Paul, Paul picks that up and, and quotes that. That's a true saying from Eliphaz. The Lord catches the wise in their craftiness. And also, as we've seen, Job has said some things that were not right. Found fault with God and reproved the Lord, and the Lord rebuked Job. Job had to repent in dust and ashes. And so how is it now that the Lord can say to Eliphaz and his two friends that they had not spoken what was right of him, but Job had? Well, I think the answer is, is that even though Job had said some sinful things in his suffering, and that even though there were often true and helpful things to be found on the lips of Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, nevertheless, the main thrust of Job's argument was correct, while the main thrust of the argument of his friends was wrong. John Gill put it this way, and I think, I think gets to the heart of this helpfully. He says, their notion, that is, those are the friends, uh, their notion, and which they had expressed, was that God deals with men in this life according to their outward behavior, that God did not afflict good men, at least not sorely, nor long, and that wicked men were always punished now, from whence they drew this inference, that Job, being so long and so greatly afflicted, must be a bad man or God would have never dealt with him after this manner. Job, on the other hand, affirmed that wicked men enjoyed great prosperity, which good men did not, and therefore the love and hatred of God were not known by these things, and men's characters were not to be judged by these outward things, in which he was doubtless right. That seems to be, that seems to be the issue here, that the Job's friends, again, they were continually saying, Job, you sin, tell us what it is, repent, and you'll be blessed. Just turn away from your sin. We know you're sinning somewhere. And Job said, Hey guys, the reason I'm suffering is not because of something that I did. Job certainly knew he was a sinner before any of this took place, but he could honestly and in good conscience say, This is beyond me. I don't know why I am suffering. It's not because of some sin that I have done. And so because these friends had spoken of the Lord... What was not right, and Job had, the Lord required that they offer a burnt offering for a sacrifice. And not only that, we find that Job is to play the role of intercessor for his friends. The Lord says in verse 8, My servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. And these men complied. They offered the sacrifice. Job prayed for them. We find at the end of verse 9 that the Lord accepted Job. Now, in this intercession, we should see both an example for ourselves and a foreshadowing of someone else. It's an example for us in that you and I should be interceding for our brothers and sisters in Christ and also interceding for those who are outside of Christ. Just think of passages like James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Think of 1 John 5.16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. Now, certainly none of us are priests in the sense of sacrificial priests. But inasmuch as we all have access to God in prayer and are called to intercede for others, we are priests in that sense. 
With the death of Jesus, the temple curtain has been torn in two, and we have access to God through Christ. And as James says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. So we ought to be praying, especially for those who have fallen. That's what Job was doing. He was praying for his friends who had fallen. Once they've fallen, it's not the time to abandon them. That's the time that they need our help. That's the time they need to be lifted up by us in prayer. And what's helpful here to notice is that we should do this even, and perhaps especially for those who have injured us. Right? Job wasn't just praying for his friends who had randomly sinned out there. Job was praying for his friends who had sinned against him. Right? Can you imagine being as low as Job was and having friends who treated him as these friends did and then to turn around and to function as the one who intercedes to God for them so that they would be forgiven and restored? That's what Job did here. Again, these were not just friends who sinned. These were friends who sinned against him and who kicked him when he was down. And he still prayed for them. He still interceded for them. And we should have no hesitation to do the same thing with those who sin against us. It was a wise petition in the litany in the Book of Common Prayer where uh, the prayer says, "...that it may please thee to forgive our enemies, persecutors and slanderers, and to turn their hearts. We beseech thee to hear us, good Lord." Right? They're asking for God to forgive their enemies, slanderers, persecutors, turn their hearts, asking for, for their repentance, their restoration. That's what Job is doing here, right? So let's learn from Job to intercede for others. But let's also see here in the, the priestly actions of Job the shadow of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. Job was certainly a sinner, but he was also a godly man. And in his undeserved suffering and in also his intercession for others, he foreshadows the greatest man who ever walked on this earth. Job offered uh, prayer for his friends, offered prayer for those who had sinned against him and against God. And the Lord said that the prayer of Job would be acceptable to him so that he would not deal with these men according to their folly. That's good news because if the Lord accepted Job, who had himself but just recently repented, how much more does he accept the intercession and sacrifice of his only begotten sinless son, the Lord Jesus Christ? If the Lord listens to Job and accepts those for whom Job intercedes, how much more will God the Father accept those for whom his only begotten son intercedes? That's good news for us. Praise be to God. And notice, finally, in verses 10 through 17, how the Lord restored the fortunes of Job, Job's restoration. We see there in, in verse 11 that it was ultimately the Lord who had brought these adversities on Job. And now we see that it was the Lord who restored Job. We see here how his family and friends came to him and consoled him. We see the doubling of his livestock, because if you compare the, uh, the original standings of his herds back in chapter 1 with the, the figures that are given here, you'll see that the, uh, the numbers of livestock are, are doubled. And in regard to his children, he had lost 10 and he gained 10. And I would take it that even though he gained 10, 
and didn't gain 20, but nevertheless, the number of his children were actually doubled. He had 10, now he has 20. Not 20 more, but 20 in total. And even though the 10 of them had died through the malice of Satan and the righteous permission of God, nevertheless, if they were believers, they lived on and still live on. Now realize the the text is not explicit about this, but the fact that Job's animals were doubled and yet he only received an equal amount of children may imply the great fact and truth of eternal life. Job himself certainly believed in his own resurrection, as we saw back in chapter 19, verses 25 through 27. He knew that his Redeemer lived and that his own eyes would see his Redeemer even after his skin had been destroyed. Everything turned out well for Job in the end. No doubt the memories of the heartache were still there, but things ended well. But we need to to note here, and we need to pay special attention, that everything does not always end well from an earthly perspective for all believers who suffer in this world. Some believers suffer terribly in this world, and their earthly situation is never turned around. They go to their grave in suffering and in agony. Now, sometimes the situation does turn around, but not always. And so we shouldn't take the ending of the book of Job as a license for us to think that we'll all get our best lives now, like Job seemed to. That's not the point of the ending of the book of Job, and that's not the point we should be gleaning here. But what the ending of the book of Job should do for us, though, is to encourage us to look beyond the horizon of this world to the life of the world to come where God will demonstrate the riches of his grace toward his people. And it is noteworthy, I think, that this is the way in which James applies the lesson of the book of Job. So turn with me, if you would, to James chapter 5, and we'll look at, look at James 5, verses 7 through 11. James chapter 5, uh, beginning in, in verse 7. And so James says here, Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. Now, if you look at, if you look at the argument that, that jo- James is, is making there in Chapter 5, verses 7 through 11, he's, he's talking to these Christians who are, who are suffering in some way, and he's urging them to be patient in their suffering, to wait for the coming of the Lord, to endure in the knowledge that the outcome of the Lord's dealings will be good. And there in verse 11, that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And that's the lesson that we too Need to learn, that's the lesson that we ought to glean, especially here from the ending of the book of Job. We need to learn to be patient. Not to be patient 
until the trials in this life are over and we get an abundance of earthly blessings. That may never happen. We need to be patient and wait for the coming of the Lord, knowing that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Knowing that if we belong to the Lord through Christ, it's all going to be all right in the end. It might not be all right here in this world. It might be great in this world. It might be really hard here. But the lesson we need to learn is to be patient, and to wait, and to endure, and, and see in Job a, a picture that the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. And what Job experienced here in this world compares not at all to what Job is experiencing now in the presence of the Lord. And that's where we'll be with him. So be strong, let your heart take courage, and wait for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, so often we want things and we want improvement, we want blessings, we want answers, and we want it all right now. Father, we ask that you'd forgive us for our impatience. We ask that you would teach us to wait for your coming. Teach us that indeed you, the judge, are standing right at the door. Father, we know that when Christ comes, all will be well for his people. Lord, we pray that you would help us, that you keep us, keep us waiting, keep us trusting in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.